Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Um, and, you know, very accessible, beautiful grounds. If you guys find yourself traveling to Napa Valley, I implore you to visit Corley. It's a very heartfelt spot. Uh, it's historical. And I'm not going to reveal too much because I want you to do some research. I want you to go to Corley Family Winery website and learn a bit about it. Um, Kent is being remarkably modest. As you've gotten to know him in the past half hour or so, it becomes very apparent um, that he you know, has humility to spare. But um, I would urge you to get to know the brand that he's a part of. So your father obviously had a huge love of wine and love of people. And um, one of the you know, characteristics that's very apparent that you've described is self-reliance. Um, so he built a successful business, which as you pointed out, it is a business, economics first. It's lovely to run around the vines as I have for a long time. But the deeper you go, the more you realize that Napa Valley, for all its glamour and beauty and generosity and hospitality and just blessed space on earth, you know, that God had a really good day when he made Napa Valley, as I jokingly say, um, there's, you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication, a lot of tenacity. Um, and all of that is on full display in your family brand. Um, and your dad clearly was the beginning of it all. So as you uh, continue this, I'm sure your father is very much a part, even though he's no longer with us, a part of, you know, fabric of what Corley family wines are. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, the we were the one of the first wineries in the valley in 1980 um, when we we built the winery in 1982 we built our hospitality center uh, we were one of the first to have um, a chef on staff at, at that time so richard alexi was a very well-known uh, chef in the area and we hired him to work alongside the winemaker, Alan Phillips at, at the time, um, who we got from Rutherford, came from Rutherford Hill. And those two collaborated on making wines and presenting those wines with food from the, from the very beginning. And, you know, which, you know, now it's kind of table stakes for, for most wineries, but at, at the time it was very innovative. We also had innovative technology in the, in the cellar itself. Um, and, you know, so he, you know, he spared no expense at, at the beginning to get things set up to be an outstanding um, business and to make out, outstanding wines. And from a, from a business standpoint, maybe you think about it, I mean, it's a different scale from a football team or a sport or a sports team, but there's just a lot of capital investment that goes into to building a business, and the annual revenues aren't up to 
you know, paying that back for, 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 for quite a while. Over time, you, you know, you expect the business to be of some significant value over time, but that doesn't mean that any individual year isn't very challenging. And, you know, you can have a couple of harvests in a row go the wrong way and, you know, you're, you're behind the eight ball. So, you know, farming is uh, for as, as careful of, of a planter as, as he was still being a farmer, you're at the whims of mother nature come harvest time. And, you know, you, you're, you're never sure what you're gonna get. So it's always an interesting business from, from that standpoint. And, you know, I think we're presented with significant challenges every year. Now, you know, maybe even even more than ever in this COVID world that, that we're in, our uh, tasting rooms have been shut for a, a long time. So we're having to reassess, you know, how we might be able to, you know, be in you know, close communication with people who want to come and, and, and visit and, and be with us. And same with restaurant sales. So there's there's never you know any loss for interesting challenges for small family wineries. And maybe that is one thing that has worked in our favor. Interestingly, we've got family that did want to stay in the business, my brothers, and now as I said, the generation coming up, where over the last 10, 20 years, we've had more family wineries fall out um, uh, of the family and you know, go into consolidation or merger into other larger wine operators. And so we are you know, able to differentiate ourselves just that we are still standing and we're still you know, family, you know, family operated business. So that does give us a lot of satisfaction that what he set up in, in the beginning um we can continue wow your father clearly was a brilliant business person and a pragmatist and yet what coexists with clearly his love of families love of the land love of the community everything you're describing it's so incredibly difficult labor intensive expensive and always challenged that you know a lot just cannot live up to quite frankly and not necessarily in the sense of bolting anybody. It's just like nine out of 10 startups fail. My business is very, very tough. So for you guys to have such an incredible in infrastructure to begin with, and the man that had this vision, but also had so many soft spots and so much passion and compassion that ended up materializing to various bits that you've described, such as setting up a winery that has such a powerful theme behind it. Again, I'm being mom about it because I want you guys to do the work. I want you to research it for yourself. Um, all the aspects of farming and winemaking and hospitality, it's a monumental task. Um, and he clearly had such a love of his community, of guests. He wanted to give. It's, it's almost like a part of this charitable spirit, even though it was a business. It shows up in so many different places. Um, you know, your father clearly is one of those people that I know for me, I would have been honored to get to know. So I'm learning about him through you. 
what is the one thing that you miss the most about him? Uh, probably a sense of humor. I mean, you know, I think all of our senses of humor in, in the family is, is maybe gets, um, you know, it's, it's, it's there, but I think, you know, the, the business can be serious and, um, you know, you get caught up in the day-to-day, the -day, um, you know, normal things that people do. And, <laughs> but being able to look back and I think I was looking through some photos just the other day of, um, of him and he's always smiling and there's usually some crowd of people, you know, he's, he's addressing and, you know, I, I think it's, I probably missed his, his sense of, of humor. You know, there was always, you know, and he got it from his, his parents too. There was always some, um, some, some joke to be had or some funny way of, of, saying things um and being and he you know he and his brothers had a lot of sayings uh, abbreviations and things that you know my brothers have, have you know have have kept up so good amount of in, inside jokes and you know i think even you know even towards the end um you know as he was you know he was never in the hospital for for very long which was Terrific. He could be at home on the ranch, um, and he would come up to the to the winery, you know, once a day, and shuffle up and down the, um, you know, the the floor, getting mail, and uh, you know, just despite what he was going through, you know, he was very optimistic, um, you know, not letting you know, not letting him get down um, by what he was going through. He didn't want anybody else to get down either. Um, and it's easy to do that um, with with cancer. It can it can be, you know, all encompassing um, and kind of cast a gloomy pall. And he 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 didn't let that happen. So, you know, all, all the way to the end, he was, um, you know, he's probably winking at the nurses, you know, right before he closed his eyes at, at the end. Um, you know, just kind of a, a wink and a nod guy. Like he had the, you know, you had an inside joke with him, even if you didn't know him very well. Uh, he was able to make that kind of connection with people. I got chills. Thank you so much for sharing it. I know I needed to hear it, you guys. With this COVID situation and everything that's going on in our country and worldwide, I think we're all impacted. And I know that there are days that go by that I forget how to smile. And now I will remember your dad. And he will help me put things in perspective. Just the man that enhanced so many lives, that created so much value, that was arguably unfairly, there's nothing, you know, that um, is right about somebody getting this terrible disease. Never for anybody is it something that, you know, can be predicted or, you know, that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, but he managed to not be defined by this disease at any point is what it sounds like. He was always himself. And I can almost see, as you're describing it, a twinkle in his eye and a kind smile. And that is everything. 
um, I've always been big on quality of life and quality of life can be had, I think, in any situation, just about, you know, even the worst one, if your mind really reaches out for it, it could be something as simple as a smile. And um, I think he's such an inspiration. The fact that he was able to, just by his sheer presence, create a space, you know, a light that people gravitated towards at any moment, even the worst, would be considered by many the worst. It is so needed. Um, I think that we need to dig a bit deeper. And those of you that are listening, please take the time and the energy and the trouble to reach deep within and to say to yourself, hey, if you can do it, I can do it. I can make my day better. I can make somebody else's world just slightly better. Just make an effort. Reach out with your heart. I call it a Jedi trick sometimes because it comes from deep within. It comes from something, um, some energy that we harness. And those kinds of examples that what you just gave us with your dad that encompass it in so many ways, knowing that that's possible, knowing that there was a human and still is in our memories and hearts and your family's memory. Um, I think that's extraordinary. Um, it must have been such a blow, so devastating for you guys when your dad was when your dad received the cancer diagnosis. How how did you handle it? How did you how did it land on you? Well, pretty much as he sometimes does these things, it was it was very it was very softly and, and gradually. He never made any pronouncement to any, you know, certainly not the family all altogether, or even in, individually, that he had cancer. Um, he so there wasn't any moment of of time, you know. I think he he was he was told he had prostate cancer and um you know they were going to start him with radiation which is not atypical um so i can't even remember but i think he probably said oh yeah I've, i'm going in for some some radiation you know in the next you know couple of weeks or something like that never mentioned cancer <laughs> you know, he just kind of slips it in. Oh, I'm going to see the doc, um, and so there, there wasn't any any big blow. Um, it was more of a gradual, like an like an IV drip of information. Um, you know, he didn't want to have, you know, all eyes focused on him um, for this, or didn't want any sympathy or 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 sorrow, and. You know, you never know, I think, how things are, are going to go. So it was kind of hard to handicap exactly what was in front of him. Um, he had just come through, you know, this other major, you know, near-death experience that I described earlier in, in, in the show. So he was feeling like he had a second, you know, he was given kind of a second life. Um, and so I think that, that tempered him a, a little bit for when he uh got cancer and i think the the doc was fairly 
um, you know, it, it wasn't dire from, from the beginning. And I do think that there was some fear of chemotherapy. And as long as he didn't have to get chemotherapy, maybe in his mind, well, he's not really that sick yet. And eventually he did have chemo and it wasn't even as bad as he thought. Actually, you know, like some people do, he came out feeling better after chemo. Some people it's just really debilitating and, and, and brutal, but his, his particular cocktail was, um, you know, <laughs> oddly uplifting in, in a, in a way, um, by the time he, he got there. So the family didn't have, you know, any major blow that, that we took and he was already, you know, late seventies. Um, and, you know, before he was, you know, going to get sick. So it's such a different story when you have uh, someone young in your family that gets cancer diagnosis, um, where it comes out of the blue. I think when you're of a certain age, it's not unexpected. And certainly with prostate, you know, we men can expect to, to get it if we live long enough. It's also maybe trying to protect you by not using those scary words and kind of having it be a presence in your family's life. Yeah, and maybe protecting him. Um, you know, maybe there's some part of denial. You know, if you kind of talk around the edges of it, maybe it's not so uh, not so bad. But I think certainly he, he never really wanted to have, you know, any sympathy or an outpouring of concern you know he was he wanted to be on the other end of that uh, ex exchange as, as often as he could describing again somebody who's very understated that would prefer to be kind of in the shadows in that sense but also such a such a giver even his interaction with the nurses that you briefly touched upon the fact that Sounds like he lit up the room. He would. He would. He would go in and he'd take over. It's like the, the, sometimes the doc would have a hard time getting a word in edgewise because dad's talking about this or that <laughs> or the other. And he know you know he's got some personal insight and you know he asks questions of of his health providers and um, you know wants to know what what they're up to and he he would light light the room up and. You know, sometimes they'd have to, you just need to be quiet for a second, Jay. <laughs> we, we've got to ask you some medical questions. If you, you know, uh, and, you know, but yeah, that's, that's the way he was. And he was that way, you know, walking into, you know, Costco or Walmart, you know, seeing the greeter. It's like, hey, how are you doing? You know, he was just, you know, he was kind of on, on stage for, um, you know, for a lot of his life, and he 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 liked being there, um, not necessarily being the um, you know the the spotlight of attention, um, but just you know just being a little bit of a showman. A delightful person, really. Just makes me feel good to hear about someone like him. I graced the planet, and we had the gift that now you can tell the stories and, and hopefully not just within your family but um, 
this type of stuff, I always encourage, write it down. You know, I hope that there's a book happening in your future at some point, because I know I want to read it. Yeah, we've all, you know, we all have um, uh, a, a lot of chapters, you know, that, that that we have to contribute at some period of time. His younger brother, uh, Paul, um, he's got a lot of the the history of uh, of of the family back in Chicago of growing up with with Jay as as a youngster. So yeah, we we still have um, you know a, a a lot of this the story to hear that maybe continues to inform us on, you know, how he turned out the way, the way that he did. Beautiful and valuable family history. But I hope sincerely that the younger generation be well informed and be able to pass it on. It's just a fantastic legacy. Um, so when your dad was diagnosed and was going through the treatment as you described and in true to form, his persona, um, he was probably as model patient as you'd want to have. But in many people's cases, a life-changing uh, diagnosis, prognosis, self-actualization, um, you know, how people experience themselves changes on the dime, the moment we hear that word. And, you know, we're fortunate in the modern society that uh, you know, there's not only a ton of research, but a lot of means to address it. Never enough, always in, you know, a process, always a continuum. But, you know, there are resources, there's ways to, um, you know, to get treatment and to have, to kind of, you know, wrap your mind about what's going on. There's a lot of information out there is what I'm getting at. And even with the plenitude of that, and sometimes it can be overwhelming, there are gaps. And you've identified a very important one with your organization. It's a very special, very unusual, very peculiar approach. So tell us all about it, because it's absolutely fascinating. It's so important. Well, I mean, we, in you know, North Bay Cancer Alliance is a small nonprofit. And we, you know, we, we operate in, in this community in, in the North Bay, you know, surrounded by the major players of oncology and healthcare, um, which is really Kaiser and Sutter and uh, St. Uh, Joseph Health. And, you know, in, in our community, if you have cancer, you're, going to be treated at one of those um, systems. And so how can Little North Bay Cancer Alliance be relevant in, in a world where you're operating with these massive systems that have robust cancer pro programs? And you know, what, we, what we realized as we you know, as as the, the the business developed, is that the, the the patients that were being seen in the oncology centers, even the ones that had insurance that could, um, where the treatment was was covered, it was it was still very challenging for many of them 
to uh, pay for the cost of transportation just to get to the oncology appointment. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of rural. There's a lot of distance between uh, where people live and the centers of excellence where they're going to be seen for, for oncology. And as we, as we start communicating with these oncology centers that are actually providing the treatment, the chemo, the radiation, um, all the follow-ups, you know, um, in talking with the patient navigators and the nurse navigators there, we just start, started hearing stories of, you know, that they were having to open up their wallets to give bus money out so a patient could, could get home or, you know, give out money so they could come back, you know, the next day for, for treatment. And so we, we, we started to, to realize one of our, you know, that there's a lot of people falling through the cracks of care despite the fact that there's a lot of care available and federal programs and state uh, financial programs, um, even though there's a lot out there, there's, you know, there's just a lot of people falling through the, through the, the, the cracks. And these are people who are um, challenged or income and health challenged already. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palo Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.